Welcome to The Alignment Show, featuring conversations with folks who have taken steps to identify their highest values and align their lives around them. Time on this earth is not unlimited, and you may be seeking to make sure you spend your time on things that matter to you. These conversations will encourage you and support you in doing so. Now, let's meet this week's guest on The Alignment Show. And a good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be in the world. Welcome once again to The Alignment Show, sort of a holiday edition. Here we are in between Christmas and New Year's. So if you're celebrating Christmas, a lot of celebrations going on this time of year, of course. And in my greeting, I always say the time wherever you are in the world, today's guest actually is coming from us halfway around the world. I'm looking forward to introducing you to Rachel Heron here in just a moment. A uh, little reminder as we're getting started, this show, as usual, is sponsored by my writing. I'm going to put a QR code up here for the current book that is out there, The Way of the Three-Year-Old Why, a business fable that helps you to figure out what's most important to you and bring that into your life. So it's a good story, I think, but it also teaches principles for finding out what matters to you most. You can always find out more about it by going to donking.com. That's D-O-N-N-K-I-N-G.com slash 3-Y-O, the number three and the letters Y-O. That'll point to current information about that. This show is not primarily a show uh, about writers or for writers, but we find that a lot of times we have writers as guests because the nature of the alignment show is it features conversations with people who have taken conscious steps to bring their life into alignment with their values. And for most writers, that is something that is inherent in the process. Uh, you don't just happen to write most of the time. It's something that drives people. Just about everybody that you talk with says that they want to write a book. Hardly anybody does. And among those who do, hardly anybody manages to actually get one out there. Well, today's guest, Rachel Heron, is somebody that I feel like I have known for years. Uh, although in the recorded conversation that you're going to see, we're actually meeting for the first time. Um, but there's just an instant connection with Rachel and the people who read her writing, who listen to her podcast. She helps writers all over the world, both traditionally published and independently published. She has, uh, and I think it's been a while since we recorded this. We recorded it on November 16th. I think I give uh, a background bio on her in the recording. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail but uh, as you'll hear me saying starting out, uh, I've been a fanboy for a while. This is one of those interviews that I was really looking forward to uh, being able to conduct. Uh, this is the reason I do these podcasts. You know, it gives me an opportunity and excuse to have conversations with people that I otherwise wouldn't get to talk with. And so uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to share with you, if I can get it lined up here. Yep, there we are, to share with you my conversation with Rachel Heron. So um, I, I did look at the recording enough to tell that I cut off the first word of my intro just a little bit. So it's not, it's not the transition smoothly that I like to make. 
But the most important thing here is the conversation. So let's go ahead and bring on one of my writing mentors at a distance, Rachel Heron. Things have gone as planned. My real self has just uh, introduced my virtual self. I guess that's what I am. Uh, I am a recording, but I'm not AI. I can tell you that uh, today in our house has been sort of Rachel Heron day. She's going to be our guest this week. Uh, and I say that because I started out this morning listening to her podcast. Um, Rachel has a long running podcast called How Do You Write? And I was listening to her talk with Jenny Nash about memoir. Uh, this is being recorded on November the 16th for whatever it's worth. And so we're about to record with Rachel. And then about an hour after that, I'm going to be on a community with Rachel who are sort of working together, writing together on NaNoWriMo. That's National Novel Writing Month. So this whole day is Rachel Heron. And I'm perfectly okay with that because as you'll hear in the interview, I am a fanboy. I have been listening to Rachel for a long time and she is one of my mentors at a distance. So let me just give you a little bit of background here. Rachel writes books that make people feel seen and help other writers be heard. Now, Rachel is the internationally best-selling author of more than two dozen books, including thrillers, which she writes under the name of R.H. Heron. She also writes mainstream fiction, feminist romance, memoir, and nonfiction about writing. She received her MFA in writing from Mills College, Oakland, and she's taught writing extensive workshops at both UC Berkeley and Stanford. Now, here's another reason I wanted to have her on the program today. She is a New Zealand citizen as well as an American. She lives in Wellington, New Zealand with her banjo-playing wife and brick-eating dog. And Rachel, uh, I, right off the bat, I don't want to trot down too many rabbit trails, but I want to <laughs> know about Lala playing banjo and, and the dog-eating bricks. <laughs> <laughs> well, for... First of all, it's what a delight to be on your show. I'm just so excited to hang out with you and chat with you. And yes, the the wife playing banjo is how we met. We met on an online dating website and I wasn't really into dating, but I thought I saw this person in my town who played the banjo and I grew up on bluegrass. I'm a singer. Um, it's like That's what my family does. And I reached out to her and I said, you play the banjo and you knit sweaters for your little chihuahua. We should probably know each other. And then we went on a non-date, which then turned into a date. And almost 20 years later, here we are. So she still plays the banjo. She's got a couple here. And the brick-eating dog is just my puppy, Junebug, who will – I think she has pica. She loves to eat a rock. And she loves to eat almost anything, but especially a rock. You'll hear it just out there crunching. It has not seemed to have affected her yet. But... Oh, wow. I just, I can't imagine what it's like following her with a little shovel. Uh, we, we don't want to go there too deeply. I, I will, you know, going back to the banjo thing, I didn't know about that background, but I, I have often in listening to you and Friends listening here, one of the things, as she's heard me say this before, I love Rachel's voice. Oh, but, thank but one you. of the things that I, that I find so intriguing is every once in a while you will say, y'all. Uh, <laughs> and it just, it's, 
it sounds so musical to my southern ears. Uh, where did you grow up, just generally? Where, where, where was that? Most, mostly in California. A little bit overseas on this little island called Saipan. Um, never in New Zealand. My mother was from New Zealand, and that's why I have the citizenship. Mm. Uh, but we would come and visit a lot, but we never lived here. I had the New Zealand accent until I was about five or six, just from my mother, and then it went away and it never came back. Um, but I, but I, so I've never lived in the South, but I sure do love the accent. And I just think that y'all is one of the most underutilized words. It's gender neutral. It's completely inclusive. I love it. It's friendly. And thank you for saying that. Well, absolutely. And it sounds so natural <laughs> coming from you, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not primarily why we're here today, but I just, I have the feeling, Rachel, uh, this is one of those, you and I can sit down for coffee and talk for hours, I think. Yeah. Uh, yep. So just just to keep our focus, I have, uh, for, for folks who are longtime listeners of The Alignment Show, um, and there's my wife texting me. So uh, about... <laughs> I thought maybe uh, you did that when you said the show. That would be a nice little touch. <laughs> Yeah, the, I, I guess the, the clown thing. It's not that she's a clown. It's just that's the tone that I am likely to hear. Um, <laughs> that's a good one. Anyway, um, the alignment show is really for folks who have taken chances or have worked at bringing their life into alignment. It's not primarily about the, the pandemic, but when we heard about the great resignation, I think it's really the great realignment. People realize life is short and you don't want to spend your life doing stuff you don't want to do. And, and I've seen two things, big things, I think, with you uh, over the years. The writing thing, of course, and the making the move to New Zealand. And so, you know, just to kind of dig into both of those things. Most of the shows you're on, you're talking about writing and we're going to be talking about writing. But I know as a writer, you hear people when, when you tell them you're a writer, they probably say, oh, I'd like to write a book. Everybody would like to write a book. Mm -hmm. hardly anybody ever actually does it. And among those people who actually do it, I would think it would be a much, much smaller percentage of people who then actually publish the thing. So I know you worked for at least a while as an EMS dispatcher. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got to say, folks, when I told Rachel how much I loved her voice, she said, well, I worked as an EMS dispatcher. Rachel, I have known EMS dispatchers a lot. That ain't the reason your voice is as good as it is. Uh, for 17 years, I was a 911 dispatcher, police for the police and fire medical for the first seven, and then for the the last 10, I was just fire medical. Mm. And um, and it is true, not all dispatchers um sound as as good as perhaps they could on the radio. But I always took pride in sounding good on the radio to the embarrassing point where the guys on the midnight shift, <laughs> they used to call me AM love. And I would, <laughs> and, I, and I would try to sound as like soft and nice as I could when they were coming in at like three in the morning to not wake up the rest of the crews, you know, <laughs> kind of talking to them in their dreams. <laughs> I can just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you, when you, how long did you think about, I would like to be a writer, I would like to write a book, before you actually made that move? That's a great question. I graduated with my MFA, and I absolutely hated teaching at the college level. It just was not, I was not cut out for it. I tried it for, I only tried it for a couple semesters and um, did not like it. And so I went and just got a job where I thought I could take the headset off at the end of the day and go home and leave it behind, which was true. And I also got a job 
this 911 job. Um, I wanted it because I thought it would be a window into the human condition every time I answer the phone. And it absolutely was, it was perfect for that. Um, but so I had my MFA and I just was not, I wasn't completing anything. I wasn't right. I wasn't writing anything to completion. I was always trying and struggling to write. Um, but for the first seven years of doing 911, I was trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, just not finishing anything. And then I heard about National Novel Writing Month and I wrote a novel in a month and it was a terrible, awful novel. And I'd never done anything like it before writing that fast. And, but what happened was that it also was the best writing I'd ever done because I got out of my editor's way that inner editor. I just, you know, I didn't have time for her to be chipping, sitting on my shoulder, telling me how terrible I was. And I just wrote. And so that book I was able to revise and I got an agent and she sold it in, in a three book deal at auction to Harper Collins. And then to answer your question, the long way around, I spent the next 10 years doing both jobs. I usually worked between 60 and 80 hours a week on the 911 job, sometimes up to hundred or 120. Cause I lived at the firehouse and would oh, yeah. always work 48 hours, but up to 120, you know. Um, and then I would have three or four days off. So it was great for being a writer. And that whole, those whole 10 years, I was also spending 20 or 30 hours a week. I don't have kids writing. And I was always moving toward the dream of quitting the day job. And uh, and in, I love that you have this show and you talk about alignment because I was so out of alignment for so long. I was a mm -hmm. typical 20-year-old who went to college and accepted the credit card that they offer you at, you know, at the at the front of school. And mm -hmm. I got into debt. I got student debt. Um, so for many years I was at the 911 job, I was just working to pay off bills and debt that we had accrued. And so then when I started selling books all of that money went to paying off the debt. And mm. then I was able to look at finances finally out of it. And when I talk about getting out of debt, at one point we were, I think the highest we were at was $120,000 worth of debt that was not a mortgage. We're talking an old IRS bill from my wife, $50,000 of credit card, 40 grand of credit card debt. So it was a every every chunk of change I ever got, we threw at that. So then I looked up one day and after 10 years of doing that, we were out of debt and I knew that I needed to make $3,000 a month in order to support my half of the mortgage in the Bay area. We lived in Oakland, California. And, and I, I thought, well, I have been doing this. I have been making more than that a month for the last couple of years. And I'm going to take this leap. And I'm telling you, I, um, I had a plan. I had a plan to quit in July of that year of 2016. And in, I believe it was February, my mother-in-law got really sick and she lived in Idaho. And um, I knew that I could spend more time in Idaho if I were to quit early. And I thought, or I could save up some more money or I could not. And so one day, months early, I walked into my manager's office and I said, I'm quitting. And nobody quits in 911. Nobody quits in the fire service. Nobody quits in cops. They're like, you retire out. Yeah. You don't quit. So it was it was a shock. And I had to go home from my shift with a migraine. I, <laughs> I stressed myself out so badly. Um, but it was the best thing I've ever done. And I continued to make that money and I make more money now. And, um, and you know, you know me, I talk openly and honestly yeah. about making money as a writer because a lot of people don't. And 
it was just the best thing. One of the best things I've ever done for myself was to say that I, I believe in myself enough to try this for a while and hopefully we don't end up living under a bridge. That was, that was the goal. <laughs> Uh, and th that phraseology speaks to me. My dad, to his dying day, literally worried about winding up living under a bridge. So yeah. to him, security was such a major thing. And obviously, that's what we're talking about in a way here. Mm -hmm. So for folks listening who are thinking about making some kind of a leap, what we've heard from several of our guests, uh, they had a plan and, and you did both for a while. Were you making more from your writing than you were from the 911 when you quit it? Definitely not. Definitely not. The 911 job at that point was more than six figures a year because of the enforced mandatory overtime. We were, I was just making so much money at, at that job. And mm -hmm. then to go from, I, you know, I think I could guarantee that I was going to make or not guarantee, but I think I could reasonably hope that I would make $3,000 a month. So now we're going to $36,000 a year, right? From, mm -hmm. from what I made on the writing on top of the 911 gig to suddenly let that go was horrifying. And the reason I could do it was that my wife had a good job and, and most importantly, health benefits. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. one month after I quit, she lost her job. <laughs> and I do remember being in a parking lot and she called me and I am not a shopper. I'm not a person who buys clothes. I'm wearing a sweater that I made. I don't, I don't like shopping, mm -hmm. but I had in my hands when she called me to tell me that she'd just been let go. Everybody had been let go at this, um, dot com. And I was holding in my hands a bag and I'd bought $200 worth of clothing. And I thought I can't afford this. And I went to a friend's house and just cried and cried and cried. And in terms of what you talk about on the show, it was perfect. Like because she had been let go, she got a great severance package. Uh -huh. I think she had six months of Cobra health insurance paid for, and we got to spend so much time with her mother as she died. We were mm, both yeah. able to be in Idaho while that was happening. And after that, she got a great job. So okay. it was it was just one of those things that I didn't need to worry. I didn't need to be sobbing in the parking lot. But I I do tend, I think, to um understand where your dad was coming from. Like I I I place a lot in security and I don't like being scared. And often yeah. in this kind of gig, we are scared. Well, and and uh writing uh to make a living as a writer has always been challenging. Although we hear yeah. from a lot of colleagues about, and I would agree, this is probably the best time in history to be a writer. Mm -hmm. But um, there is that, that lack of security. Of course, I've always kind of thought security itself was an illusion. So we yeah, kind of disillusioned, literally. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And I hate that. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. Yeah, but, yeah. But there is... There is no real security in life, right? Either you or I could be struck right now by something falling out of an airplane and coming through the roof of our house. There's no security. Mm -hmm. So to try to find ultimate security was something that I think I'll always be practicing letting go of. And I yeah. sure practiced it stepping out of that job. Well, and in an ironic kind of way, you know, your, your backlist at this point is over, over two dozen books. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's always marketing involved to keep that going. But on the other hand, uh, without giving, you know, too personal or whatever, I know just recently you dealt with uh, COVID 
twice, I think, you know, it was one right after the other. Uh, you would have three weeks at a time where you really couldn't do much. And the backlist is still out there working. And the backlist is out there working. It is it is a form it is a form of passive income but you are right that passive income is one thing but when your books are on amazon or the you know the big vendors you will quickly not be seen if you're not doing right. at least something to push them up there but but what an absolute blessing to yeah i got covid in the states and then took the pexlovid got on the plane as a negative came home to wellington and we tested positive again we had the paxlovid relapse so i had those three weeks of being out of commission and i also you know teach classes i teach writing mm -hmm. and i was able just to push those classes off by a week which i mm -hmm. hated doing because i'm so stubborn but how cool is it that i just got to email everybody and say nope we're going to be a week late starting because i am in bed and i'm not getting out of bed mm -hmm. and you know coming from emergency services you worked sick you always worked sick the fact that i went home that day with a migraine was incredibly anomalous. I cannot tell you how many times I worked through 12 hour migraines, you know? It, so the fact mm -hmm. that I get to do that now is something I never, ever take for granted. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's probably a form of security that you wouldn't have thought of as security going into. That is so true. I don't think mm -hmm. I had thought of it as security until you just said it. That's mm -hmm. really beautiful. And of course, when you were on that first book, you know, there wasn't a lot of security there. Uh, by the time that you made the jump, how many books did you have out at that oh, point? And how many of them were traditionally published? Were any of them indie published at that point? I think I had probably 13 or 14 books out, I'm going to guess. And the majority of them were traditionally published, although I think I had... <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me think about it. I think they must have all been traditionally published because then the first all mine indie published books were <laughs> it's a firefighter romance series. Oh no, I did. Oh God, no, you're you're. I am remembering they were out. I did bring those. I brought at least the first book out because the guys found out about it and they um, were reading it to each other down the hall. <laughs> I would go down to get coffee. Oh, reading it out loud. So at least the first indie book of that, the Firefighters of Darling Bay series, was out. Um, but the rest were traditional published. But from that, really, I got a taste for indie publishing. And now the majority of my books are indie published because I've gotten, not only do I still indie publish, but I've gotten a lot of rights back. I've gotten five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I've gotten 12 books back from traditional publishers. They've, yeah, I've been able to request the rights to be reverted to me. And that means I can republish them. And in fact, I just got three more back and I'm really excited about those. Those were three women's fiction novels that I really loved and they never did audio. So I'm going to do audio for them. And that's going to be awesome. I love, I love traditional and I love indie and I really like to combine the both. Mm -hmm. And just a quick side comment here. You're going to do audio books. Are you going to do the audio? Yes, I think good, I am. Good. Okay, I'll be yes. buying them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've done two audiobooks. I've done, I did Fast Draft Your Memoir and I did my memoir, A Life in Stitches, but I've never done fiction. So I am going to get coaching because that takes some acting skills too. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't have that skill. So I will, I will be hiring somebody to help me learn how to do that. Okay, <laughs> I, I will be looking forward to that. But, but it, it uh, leads me to the bigger question that was in the back of my mind. Uh, we have heard um, our, mutual you know she she doesn't know me from adam but you know another one of my uh mentors from afar is joe penn 
Oh, and uh, and I know you know her uh, pretty well. And so we hear her talk about, uh, as she puts it, the three Fs that drive a writer. You know, uh, you write for freedom, fame, or fortune. And these are not mutually exclusive, but it's sort of a hierarchy. Um, you've got to, in her case, she says freedom is the primary thing. Of course, because of that, she has to pay attention to the income. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I think I'm hearing from you that the freedom is a big thing, because what I hear is more excitement as you talk about. I got those rights back. <laughs> and, and it is true that the way traditional publishers function these days, there's probably a greater opportunity for fortune. Uh, you don't have to sell as many books because you get to keep a little bit more of each book. But is freedom the primary driver for you, do you think? That's such a good question. Um, Freedom is absolutely the primary driver for me. And then I was kind of ranking them in my head as you said them. It goes freedom, fortune, and then fame. If I have freedom over my time, and if I have fortune enough to make a good living and hopefully provide for retirement, um, which is my next step is to really explore how to do that because I don't know how to do that. And then if nobody ever knew my name ever, I would not care. It's always nice if somebody says, oh, I've read your books. Um, Or a a few times I've been recognized on the street, which always makes me just want to like pass out and roll Mm -hmm. under a car. So um, (laughs) I could could live without that forever. But the freedom and the fortune, yes. And to what you said about the traditionally publishing versus indie publishing, to exactly that point, I, and I do like to talk numbers, I made $15,000. Um, as an advance on my memoir that was called A Life in Stitches. And that came out about 12 years ago. I got the rights back because it stopped selling, basically went out of print, got the rights back. In the first year that I published it last year, uh, republished it, I did a 10-year anniversary, I made 30000 mm. That was, and how about, I probably only spent maybe 3000 on ads. Mm-hmm. So it doubled what I had made 12 years ago because you make more on every book and because I was in charge of putting the ads toward it. I mean, my old publisher would never have put an ad toward a 12 year old book. Why would Mm. they do that? But I can, I can choose to do that. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I get excited about it. What's that? I saw that whole thing about choice, you know, is yes, yes. control. Um, and I, I relate to that real strongly. Um, now, now, there's a, a closely related thing. This is not so much about uh, freedom, see, freedom, fortune, fame, because uh-huh. while that is what drives writers, on the other hand, if that's a primary life focus, freedom, fame, fortune, there's probably lots of better ways to achieve any of those than yes. writing so you know 100%. Like, yeah that brings us back to the writing thing now when i when i started and uh, again longtime listeners here some of you know this already um i'm i'm about to turn 68 i, I have made all or part of my living writing since i was 14 years old wow but that's it was, amazing it was mostly short form it was mostly newspapers magazine yeah. magazine articles blog posts um, just published my first book in 10 years and it's in a new genre. But when I started way back when the newspaper business, I figured out real quick that there were two kinds of writers in the newsroom. There were those people who loved the language, loved the writing and to them, the necessity of interviewing people and digging up records at the courthouse and all that, that was just a means to an end. 
that they would write anything. This was just a way to make mm-hmm. a living, and they had to do the research to support that. But then there were those people who wanted to expose corruption, and they wanted to do the research. They loved digging. To them, the writing was the necessary means to an end. Mm-hmm. And I was very clear that I was primarily a writer. Mm-hmm. So now I've heard you, and by the way, I love when you and Sasha Black get on there together. You know, the, the Black Heron <laughs> episodes of, of your mutual podcast. We um, are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I just, I love listening to it. And one of the things I picked up listening to you guys recently was how Sasha loves to write and revision is what bugs her. You are the opposite. Total opposite. Okay? It's like you, you write something in order to have something to edit. As you think about all the things you've written, uh, the the uh, the romance, the uh, the thrillers, the nonfiction, the memoir, uh, is it topic first, and then you write to dig into those topics, or is it that I will write anything? I've got to have something to focus on because if you try to write about everything, you reach nobody. Yeah, yeah. But which comes first in that in that breakdown? For me, the topic comes first, but it's it's a very generic umbrella topic because I truly do not know what I think or what I believe about anything until I start to write about it. And when you were talking about the newsroom, I would have absolutely been the person, and I always feel like journalism is this ghost path that I didn't take, but I wanted to, but I would have been the person doing the digging because curiosity is what drives me. Oh. And I love to look things up and go down rabbit holes and then write about what I find. And usually I write terribly and circularly. And I say the same thing nine different times, trying to take a different angle until I know what I think about it. There's that great um, Susan Sontag uh, quote that says, uh, my writing is smarter than I am because I can revise it. And I kind of giggled when I first read it, but it really, it, it is really true for me. I'm not always that smart about things. And when I write something, it's as smart as I can be in that moment. But when I go back to revise it, not only do I have a little bit more life experience, but I can reread what I wrote and learn from it. And therefore I am now a smarter person and know how to fix it to make it worth more. And then third and fourth and 30th time I read something that I wrote, I'm always learning from that too. So it is this amalgamation of knowledge that I pile upon doing the work of curiosity. And then at the end of a project, I'll be able to tell you, this is how the topic started. And this is what I learned. And this is what I say in this book. But when I'm starting, all I know is that little umbrella topic. I am interested in X and I have no idea where it will go, but I'm always sure it will go somewhere. And I have not been wrong yet there's always a yet i could be wrong tomorrow (laughs) so so you're digging primarily because of the curiosity later you know i i could get a book out of this Uh, Uh, actually i think it's um i think i usually have an enough chutzpah maybe to say i i have curiosity about this and i bet there's a book in there somewhere Mm. so the both both things and and sometimes i have been wrong and i follow curiosity and i th- say well well that was really interesting and i'm not going to write a book about that <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but i'm never let down because i'm so driven by curiosity well and even those little things you know it could show up as just a minor part of a scene in a book somewhere part of a scene or a, i have a patreon that i really love writing these essays for and sometimes they just turn into a patreon essay i'll start 
doing some work and I'll think, is this going to be a book? And I'll do an essay a month for a few months. And then it is not, but mm -hmm. boy, did I have fun learning about whatever it was. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just a great value to align with right there. Um, oh, I think it's, I don't know if it's aligning with as much as obsessed by, right? Yeah, I can't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe I'm, that is, would you say that realignment is coming into alignment with your obsessions? It could be, it could be, you know, it's, it's um, I have to think that there are a lot of people who will have curiosity and then they'll think, yeah, but that's not going to pay the, the rent this month. I don't have time mm -hmm. for that. And then as they go through life, that part can just dry up. Yeah. And that's sort of sad. You know, that and, is really sad. And I love to read these books where um, Catherine May does this. She wrote that beautiful book called Wintering, which was just her exploring being in the winter of her life. Like she was cold and dead and grief stricken and just kind of wandering around inside that wintering. And I'm, I don't think she sat down and thought, I'm going to write a book about wintering and it's going to be a bestseller. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was just writing to explore how she felt and how she could handle it. And it became mm. a bestseller because it resonated. With so many yeah. People. yeah. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense right there. I mean, uh, we've heard so many people, uh, you're one of those people. You know, I don't know what I think until I write about it. Writing is such a great thinking tool. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I know you do a lot of training for writers. There's always this question about, uh, you know, plotter or pantser. And, and and there are some respected colleagues who will, will say, you know, write to market. You need to know exactly what you're going to say before you sit down and say it. Uh, then there are those of us who, you know, I had no idea the character was going to do that. Let's follow <laughs> them around and see what they do. Um, yeah. Just all of that is and I'm rambling a bit here. What I see it that the average person, this is leading to my next question for you. The average person I think will think of things. Oh, I wish I could do that. I want to write a book. I want to move to New Zealand, but then I can't, they talk themselves out of, I can't. And whether they dry up or not, I'm not even going there. What I see, as I said, starting out here that I see different about you is that you managed to do those things. I didn't know that your mother had the New Zealand citizenship, which kind of gave you a leg up. Okay. Yeah. It gives, it gives us a big edge on getting in, especially during COVID when nobody was getting in. Right. Yeah. Right. So the average American may not be able to say, Hey, I want to move over there where Peter Jackson directed all those movies. Um, <laughs> but still, I mean, even having that advantage, it's a big thing to say, let's move to New Zealand. So it, it we're running short of time here, but I really want to explore this a little bit before we talk about your current projects and all this sort of thing. What led to that and how? So those are the two things that I'm looking at. I have always loved New Zealand. And then my wife and I took a, a book tour here actually about eight, maybe eight or nine years ago. And she fell in love with it. And she'd only been here once but we would always kind of pipe dream about it. You know, like someday when we retire, we'll move to New Zealand. It'll be lovely. But we don't, I don't have much family here. I have a few cousins that I never see. I've, I had no friends here. Uh, and then it was the pandemic. And we realized that my, our family and friends that we lived in the same town with, we'd already gone 15 months without hanging out with them in a room, right? We were separated. We were doing everything on Zoom anyway. And... Lala and I still liked each other, even though we had been trapped 
in the house for so long. And we started to kind of just joke about it. Like, well, we could, we could, we could sell the house right now and we could move. And it was, it was at a dinner conversation where one of us said, let's just do it. And the other one said, and we can't really remember who, who said it, but the other one definitely said like, no, we can't do that. And then we thought, no, we can, why not? And for me, it was probably besides helping my mom to like leave this earth, it was the scariest thing I've ever done to sell our house, to sell most of the things we owned, to put a few boxes in a container ship on a pallet, ship them over here where we knew absolutely no one and had no support net, no safety net. All our family is not here. And my sisters, my two sisters are my whole heart. And for me, that was... I, I, my heart broke to leave. We lived close to each other. We saw each other all the time and my heart broke to leave. And, um, but since doing it, it's been two and a half years now. Uh, we own a house. We have a brick eating dog. Um, we have so many good friends because we have tried really hard to make that happen. But the biggest thing to me that happened was to realize we could, we could do that again. We could do it in a different way. Um, we could move to Mexico if we wanted to. We could move to Bali. We don't want to. We want to stay here. And I don't, it's not even talking about the moving thing. It is that somehow doing that, breaking free of all the rules, everyone said we couldn't do that. You have a mortgage, you have family, you have friends, of course you can't go. And we did it anyway, has proven to me that the things that are most scary, we can do and we can get through. Until, you know, the, until the big scary things that we can't get through. And that's going to be a different kind of conversation to have. But um, choosing to move. And, and the reason we did it was we lived in Oakland, which is a town that I love, but it was really rough. And we lived in a really rough neighborhood where we couldn't walk anywhere. There was no grocery store. Um, we wanted to have a quieter, slower, more peaceful, better quality of life. And shortly after moving here, probably about six months after we moved here, I said to Lala, I said, I think it's about 50% easier to do everything living here. And she goes, well, I think it's about 70%. It really is slower and easier and people just show up at your doorstep and you hang out. It, it feels like living in, you know, like 1964 here. It really yeah, <laughs> is basically yeah. the same kind of place. But yeah, so um, doing the scary thing and living through it proved a lot of things for me. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Uh, I just and not to pick at it too much, but I know one of the things, scary things that you dealt with recently. You not only had the COVID thing, but you had the COVID thing in the United States while you were traveling. You know, and and thank That's God you had awful. the traveler's insurance. Uh, had some bureaucracy to jump through to be able to take advantage of it. You just didn't yeah. have to worry about that. I'm assuming in New Zealand, you don't this is it's socialized medicine if you get sick you're taken care of oh my gosh the guy who was working on my neighbor's roof yesterday slipped off his ladder and he's fine but he did break his hand um but the neighbor has no worry about lawsuits they don't sue people here because there's something called accident insurance which everyone has and that person because it was an accident is fully taken care of um and and yeah, it was it was scary in the states because I do have a couple of underlying conditions. I'm immunocompromised. I have a genetic rare disease thing, and if I'd ended up in the hospital in the states, oh my god, what would I've done? I would have had to flee at the border and never go back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? oh. Of course, travelers insurance would have paid for it, but but that was an extra thousand dollars that we paid here 
just to go to the state. It's so funny when people talk about going to the States to visit, they're like, oh, how are you going to get your insurance? You better get your insurance. Don't step out of the airport without insurance. You can't <laughs> afford it. <laughs> oh, whole, whole different way of thinking there. Uh, Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at my notes here, just making sure I don't skip over something. I want to, uh, and for, we do have audio only listeners. We've had some crawls going at the bottom of the screen. Uh, we want to make sure folks who would like to follow up with Rachel that you know how to get in contact. So what I've got right there, she's put her email address out there. Now it's Rachel, that's spelled with an A in the middle, R-A-C-H-A-E-L at rachelheron.com. Uh, and you can tell Rachel is just fascinating to interact with. I will tell you folks, she's very explicit about this she reads her email but you may not get a reply for weeks or months because she has also done this hierarchy thing you are putting writing first writing and my students come first and then email i do on friday afternoons it's friday where i am in new zealand i go to a cafe and i bang out as much email as i can do in two hours and if I don't get through it all, I don't get through it all. I do triage it. Like if my mm -hmm. father-in-law says, I need this from you, I will I will see an email and respond to him kind of thing. Yeah. So you look but, at the subject yeah, think, line there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But the, but the triaging is important because I am one of those people who can get stuck in social media. I can get stuck in email. I can get stuck doing a lot of things I don't actually want to be doing. And I want to be writing. And I want to be reading. And I want to be spending time with family and friends. And I got to tell you something exciting yeah. is that my little sister, um, is moving here and she'll be here in 10 days. Oh, wow. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Well, I, I, uh, I guess duh, she's got the New Zealand citizenship also. Yeah. Now we just got to get the third one over somehow. <laughs> Wonderful. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank oh, wow. you. Well, and you know, the related question that I had there, and now you've got something else going on here, is how in God's name do you manage it all? You know, I'm, I'm because you're doing so many things uh, and listeners, you know, she's writing, she's running virtual classes. Uh, she just, uh, well, you did that uh, virtually as well, but you're a speaker at conferences. Um, you've got, um, you've got your Patreon. There's just so many things going on and you have a new dog. I mean, I've been hearing, <laughs> hearing about the, uh, thank goodness the they're puppy. growing up. The puppy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, as I'm pulling up, you know, think about that as I pull up the QR code here. Those of you who can see it visually, this is a real easy way to get to Rachel's mailing list. How cool is that? You are so you're like 400 times more tech savvy than I am, than I ever will be. That is amazing. Well, and so a lot of my friends consider me to be real techie, but that's like being the best hockey player at the nursing home. It doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. <laughs> I think it does. This is very impressive, Don. Wow. Um, what was the question? Oh, how do I do it all? I, d I don't do all of it well, and I am always trying to strive for good enough, even though I am a perfectionist, of course, as a lot of us are, but I'm trying to reject perfectionism. And there's this idea of going for 80%, get it 80% done and then ship it. Um, and I would encourage your listeners to Google um, Hank Green. 80%. And it's a wonderful short little, I don't know, five minute video on how he talks about don't try to get everything 100% because you'll never finish anything. Get things to 80%. You've heard my podcast. It is, yes. it's got breaks and noises and I'm not going to edit it. And that's all good. 
Well, it's one of the reasons for this one. Even though this is recorded, we're treating it like it's live. It's just going to go out like it is. I prefer that. That's real yeah, life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will, folks, those of you listening, I'll get a uh, in the show notes. I'll get uh, Hank Green, 80 percent. I'll find that and put it in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, we've also got on the screen for audio only folks. Uh, if you're interested in Rachel's writing uh, or her mailing list, rachelheron.com. Remember, that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L. H-E-R-R-O-N.com slash write. And I highly recommend that you get on that mailing list. So, uh, Rachel, I want to be respectful of your time as we're coming to an end here. Uh, I always like to ask um, one of my favorite questions here. There's almost always something that you wish that I had asked that I didn't ask. Oh, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry, Rachel. Before we go there, we haven't even talked about the books that you've got coming up. I want to be sure we get those out there. Oh, I'll my goodness. So, I'll talk so fast. How about that? Okay, so um, a thriller and a memoir. And I think there's another memoir that you got that you're working on that isn't uh, yeah, ready for a, release yet. So There's a memoir coming up very soon. Um, it's called Unstuck, An Audacious Hunt for Happiness and Home. And that is about the move to New Zealand. And that'll be out on Kickstarter within a couple of months. And then it will be on all vendors. I'm self-publishing that one, indie publishing that. I do have uh, another memoir about um, sobriety and recovery. That's going to be revising that one. And I have uh, a novel coming out from Grand Central Publishing in, I think it's 2025. I don't even think it's coming out next year. Um, and that is a paranormal, uh, kind of paranormal women's fiction or women's fiction with magical realism. That's the next novel that is coming out traditionally yeah okay okay and and may not want to i don't know mention this one or not you also have a memoir of recovery memoir that you may or yeah. may not publish yeah that's the that's the one i am revising that's the one okay, yeah. on gotcha. sobriety i don't mind talking about it at all it's just that my agent and i have been working on revisions for it and i don't and here's the honest truth i don't know if i want her to take it out for a traditional publisher hmm. i'm gonna wait and see what the new zealand memoir does and i may take it back from her and just self-publish it because i do love indie publishing so much <laughs> yeah 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 we're going to be talking more about the indie publishing thing on uh, the alignment show coming up in in future months but, awesome. uh, but we're not turning this into a writer's show. Folks. Yeah, no, no. The, no. You know, this is the, about the, alignment of the soul. <laughs> yeah. And so many, so many writers have made that leap. So we do wind up with a lot of writers on here. Yeah. Rachel, this has been um, a highlight, not only of my life, but of, of this year. Uh, I can't remember if I said to you as originally scheduled, I think this episode is going to go out on December 29th. Not sure. Great. Yeah, you know, and so folks listening to this, if it's a different day, I'm sorry, you know, but uh, <laughs> what I had in mind when we first set this up is that my birthday is December 27th, and this is my birthday present to myself, just having this conversation. <laughs> so, well, that is delightful. Thank you. Happy thank birthday you, to you. you. Well, I'm going to turn you. it back over to my real self here to finish this up, and uh, we will see you next week, folks, on The Alignment Show. And thank you, Don. I guess is how we say that. It still feels awkward to me. Oh, my, that truly was a birthday present to myself. I loved the conversation. The only problem with having the recorded conversations is I thought of more questions that I wanted to ask. Uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, Rachel is, 
has invited me to be on her podcast, uh, which she is renaming Ink in Your Veins, I think is is what it's becoming instead of how do you write. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to asking her a couple of questions, even though she's going to be interviewing me. But in any case, I think you can see why I love doing this podcast. I get to have conversations with people I otherwise would not be able to. I hope that it is useful to you. Uh, we have another great conversation coming up next week. We're going to have as our guest, uh, Kathy Tejanel. She is business partners with Bob Bird in the Go Giver movement. Um, Kathy is uh, a Colby consultant. She does all kinds of excellent work on her own and in partnership with Bob. They're really making an impact on, on our culture. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation next week. Hope that this has been a good use of your time, that you will find it to make a difference in your life, encouraging to you as you consider what changes you might want to make to bring your life into alignment with your own values. We are grateful to be able to be part of you making decisions and following through on them to live your values so you can value your life. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on The Alignment Show. That's it for this week's episode of The Alignment Show. What has it inspired you to do in your own life? Whatever it is, take action now and take the first step. It will help you to talk with a friend about what you're thinking. Share confidencecultivators.com to spread the goodness. And remember to live your values and value your life. We will see you next week on The Alignment Show.